All right. Good morning. Welcome to Parkview. What a beautiful picture of grace. And that's going to be our theme of the morning. So if you're new to Parkview, I welcome you. It'd be great to talk to you after the service. Good to meet you. So good job with the schedule change. I haven't seen anybody slipping in at 11. If anybody does, don't hiss at them or point to them. Don't shame them. All right. So, but um, as far as I know, we only had one person come at eight o'clock and that person gets a pass because he was in Africa for two months. He's a med student. He was doing surgery in Africa for two months. Just got back last night and came to eight o'clock. So he looked really jet lagged, but he stayed till till nine. So it was great to have him here. So if you have a Bible, you can turn to Second Samuel chapter nine. And this summer we're in a series called "Pursuing the Heart of God," and we're looking at the life and Psalms of King David. And so the Bible calls David a man after God's own heart. And we saw a couple weeks ago that even as David was a young like teenager, uh, that he already knew the heart of God, that God was a strong God, and that God loved to give his strength to his people when they trusted him. And so we saw that David, even as a young teenager, was able to knock out the, the giant Goliath because he knew his God. His heart was pursuing the heart of God. Last week, we saw that as David continued to get to know the heart of God. He knew that his God, his God is righteous and holy. And so we saw David respond to his own sin with deep repentance and crying out for forgiveness and pleading for the mercy of God. And what we're going to see this morning is that as David got closer and closer to the heart of God, what he saw was that God is a gracious God who shows loving kindness to his people. In fact, the Hebrew word is chesed. Okay, so turn to somebody next to you and say chesed. All right? And then wipe their nose off because you probably just sprayed on them, right? So, but the Hesed of God is a very common theme throughout the Old Testament. In fact, it's one of the core qualities of God that when God would introduce himself to his people, like in Exodus 34, for example, that he would put the word Hesed right out there in the center, that he wanted to be known by his people as a God who is loyal in his love for his people, that his love for them is steadfast that it is never ending. And as David got closer and closer to the heart of God, I think it was that attribute of all that just blew David away. How could this God be so compassionate, so rich and so uh, permanent in his love toward us? In fact, if God had an office, I think Hesed would have been like his core value statement on the wall. If God had a tattoo, it would say Hesed. If God had a water bottle, Hesed would be one of the stickers there. Like this was God's God's calling card. He said, if you are my people, I want you to know that I am a God who shows hesed to his people. And so what we're going to see this morning is that God's love overflows in grace to his people, that God pours favor on people who don't deserve it and who can never pay it back. And the reason we're doing this whole series this summer is that, again, it's not just a history lesson to say, oh, that's cool that David was like that but that we want to be a people that do the same thing David did, that we want to get to know the heart of God. We want to reflect the heart of God. And today, we need to be a people that understand in a deeper way than when we walked in the room this morning that God is a gracious God, that he is loyal in his love for you. And then, then that we would be a people that would reflect that love and that grace to the people in our lives. So let me pray, and then we'll jump into this great, great passage. So, Father, the only reason we can even come into this room this morning and call you Father and talk to you and pray and sing songs to you is because you are loyal in your love for your people, that you loved us first, you sought us when we were sinful and separated from you, when we were in a dark place, 
you loved us. You showed your grace to us. And so this is the grace in which we stand. Like this is the only reason we can be in relationship with you. It's because you are a God of great love. And so would you use this amazing story from David's life? Would you use this understanding from the heart of David to, to change our hearts and remind us again of your amazing grace for us? And may we be a people that reflect that grace. May we be a church that reflects that grace in this city. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, so take your Bible, turn to 2 Samuel chapter 9. 2 Samuel chapter 9. So I'll just start reading verse 1 to kind of set it up here. It says that David said, Is there still anyone left in the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? Okay, we need to pause and just let's set this passage up. Okay, so first of all, they say there are two seasons in a person's life that truly reveal his character. Seasons of prosperity and seasons of hardship. David right now is in a season of prosperity. His kingdom has reached its most vast point. He has conquered more lands. He has uh, reached the pinnacle as far as financial success. And he is now very renowned throughout the whole world. King David has built an amazing kingdom. And it's at this peak of his kingdom that David pauses and looks back over his life. And just to remind us, if you've missed the last couple of weeks, if you go back about 20 years, David was in the sheep fields just watching sheep. And God chose David to be the next king of Israel. Even though there was a man named Saul who was the current king, God saw the heart of David, even as a teenager, and said, that man is going to be the next king. David had to wait about 15 years before he became the actual king. And an amazing thing that happened to David in that 15-year period was a friendship that he built with the current king's son named Jonathan. Now, that makes no sense because from the earthly standpoint, when Saul was king, the next in-line king should have been Jonathan. So like on a human level, you would think that Jonathan and David would be arch enemies, arch rivals, that there would be jealousy from Jonathan. But you see the exact opposite, that out of all the friendships in the Bible, often the friendship between David and Jonathan is elevated as being the most beautiful picture of what a friendship can look like. Jonathan knew that David was to be the next king, and that didn't faze him in his love and his loyalty for David. And so in the midst of their really close friendship, Jonathan and David made a vow to each other that they would be committed to each other, even to the point of if one of them were to die, that the other would remain loyal and faithful to the other's uh, descendants. And so that's what's going on here in at the end of chapter 8, David's kingdom is so vast, he's looking back over his life, reflecting how God has taken him from the sheep pens to now being king, and then looking at that amazing friendship he had with Jonathan and saying, I wonder if there, I just wonder if there's not one other descendant of Jonathan that I could take care of. I get the sense in some of the wording here that this had been a search before, but now he's asking it again, is there someone that I can bless from the house of Jonathan? And so he asks one of Saul, the former king, one of his servants named Ziba, just to ask one more time, is there a descendant of Jonathan? So he says, is there not still someone from the house of Saul that I can show kindness to God, to, or the kindness of God to him? And Ziba said to the king, there is still a son of Jonathan, he is crippled in his feet. And the king said, where is he? Okay, so notice a couple just, just slight tweaks in, in this dialogue right here. First, 
David didn't just say, is there someone in Jonathan's family that I can show kindness to? Now he's saying, is there somebody in Jonathan's family that I can show God's kindness to? And the word here is that hesed word. As David reflects back, sees that God has been good to him, that's what David wants to pass on to a descendant of Jonathan. God has been so kind to me, I'm going to show that same kindness to someone else. The other thing you'll notice is that when Ziba answered, he didn't even give the guy's name. The only thing he just said about this kid was, about the son of Jonathan was, well, oh, he's crippled. He's, he's, he's disabled. Like, doesn't even have a name. And so you might have missed that, but in David's day, for a king, most kings in David's day would not allow somebody with a disability or a crippled man to come into his presence, particularly to be close to him, because the desire in that day was to portray an image of strength. So a king would surround himself with healthy and strong and beautiful and intelligent people. You know, today you might think it might help a ruler to show his compassionate side, to have someone who doesn't quite fit that mold. But in David's day, you know, the rule of thumb was you surround yourself with the strong and the attractive and the intelligent. And so it's almost like Ziba says, yeah, you you know, he does have a descendant, but he's crippled. Almost like that's a disqualifier right there. But I love David's response right away. It's like, where is he? Where is he? Isn't like, he didn't ask, well, how crippled is he? Or like, is it, is he like just bum knee for a while? Or just didn't, didn't ask details, just said, where is he? All right. And so a couple of things are sinking in here for us. What you see David exp- expressing is the grace that he has received from God. Grace looks at somebody in, in, to bless and isn't picky, like doesn't size them up and say, well, do they deserve my grace or not? Like he's just jumping on and says, where is he? I want to bless him. I want to find him. And so God fully gives himself and accepts uh, someone uh, not because of what they deserve or not because they'll be able to pay it back, but just because he's going to show favor to them. And so David is just reflecting the grace of God that he experienced in his life. We looked at a couple of passages like this that that remind us of, of God's grace to David. Like in Psalm 78, that's where it says that, that God chose David as servant and took him from the sheepfolds. From following the nursing ewes, he brought him to, be sh- to shepherd Jacob, his people, Israel, his inheritance. Like as David looked back, he said, man, God has been so good to me to take me from being a shepherd to now being a king. Just God in his grace did that for me. And you think of other times that David wrote in the Psalms, like Psalm 23, surely goodness and mercy, that's that word hesed, goodness and hesed will follow me all the days of my life. And then I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Like that's an amazing setup that David has. Like God just continually daily shows his hesed to me. And so, and so like he's so amazed at that. And then Psalm 103, 8 is where David wrote that the Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. So the person whose heart is so filled with the grace of God just has, has just a response then of looking out for someone to bless. And as he was doing that, David found a person in need. So you go on in our story, and at Ziba, just the conversation goes on. Ziba says to the king, still not using his name, he is in the house of Mekur, the son of Amiel in Lodabar, then King David sent and brought him from the house of Machir, the son of Amiel at Lodabar. Okay, so again, not knowing this person's name, later you'll find out it's Mephibosheth. Okay, I've practiced that name several times this week, so I could say it to you. So, and again, if you said that to your neighbor, you might have to wipe their face off. Again, it's a tricky word, Mephibosheth, all right? And so, um, and so if you trace the life of Mephibosheth, 
he had an incredibly horrific day in his life that just changed everything. When Mephibosheth was five years old, he was living in the palace of his grandpa, King Saul. So his grandpa was king. From the earthly perspective, his dad, Jonathan, would be the next king. And there could even be a chance that he would be third in line, that he would be the next king. So as a five-year-old kid, that looks like a great setup that he has. But in one day, everything flipped. You know, in the last month or so, I've walked through those kind of days with a couple people from our church where one thing can change everything. And what happened to Mephibosheth was on the same day, his grandpa and his dad were killed in battle, all right? And so just boom, they're gone. Grandpa and his dad, gone. And so what adds to that um, horror and that tragedy is that in that day, that if you were part of the king's family and the king were to die in battle, you were in grave danger because whoever it was that just defeated the king would come after the palace next and any heir, any descendant of that king would be expected to be wiped out. And so when the news hit the palace that Saul and Jonathan were dead, there was a, there was a panic around the palace to just get Jonathan and Saul's family out of the palace. And so we're told in that rush that a nurse went by and picked up this five-year-old Mephibosheth and somehow dropped him, somehow did something that disabled him uh, for the rest of his days, that he was crippled in his feet. And so that we are told here by Zebo that since those days, for, for about 20 years, Mephibosheth was living in a place called Lodabar. And names were significant in that day. Lodabar literally meant no pasture. So it was a barren land. He's living sort of as a, as a fugitive. He's hiding. He's in fear, just dreading the day that the king of Israel would find out where he was and then finally end his miserable life. That's the backstory of Mephibosheth. And so, but that's the one that David said, get him, bring him to me. And that's the man whose life is about to completely, completely change. All right, because of an expression of grace. And so you can imagine there would be great fear when Mephibosheth would be told, uh-oh, looks like David's army's coming. David's got some messengers coming to get you, Mephibosheth. We knew this was coming. There's nowhere to run. We're in trouble. And so as they carried Mephibosheth back to David's palace, you can just imagine he's just, just horrified about what's going to come. He just assumes the end is near. And then he's about to meet the kindness ultimately the kindness of God, all right? So verse 6, Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face, and he paid homage. And David said, Mephibosheth. And he answered, Behold, I am your servant. And David said to him, Do not fear, for I will show you kindness, again, it's that word hesed, for the sake of your father Jonathan, and I will restore to you all the land of Saul your father, and you shall eat at my table always. And he paid homage, and he said, What is your servant that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I? Mephibosheth was, was certain that he was going to die. But those very first words from David's mouth just set a whole different tone. He called him by name. He told him not to fear. And then it's like each statement just kept getting better. You know, I'm going to restore to you the lands. I'm going to make you rich. You're going to sit at my table. Like it just kept getting better and better and better. And just like that horrific day where everything changed when he was five, now we see later because of the kindness and grace of God through David, just everything is flipped for Mephibosheth. 
He did nothing to earn this. He did nothing to deserve this. He just showed up, and he received the grace and the kindness of God. In fact, you see three different things that David did for him. Number one is that he showered love on him, just even just addressing him by name, of just calming his fears, and then assuring him of his loyal love based on his love with his father. Man, I, nothing is going to change my love for you, Mephibosheth. So number one, he just showered love on him. Second, he made Mephibosheth rich. He restored to him the lands that his grandpa used to own. Guys, these lands were so vast, it would take 35 servants to work the grounds. Like David also commissioned 35 people to serve Mephibosheth to take care of the land that he was going to have. He went from poverty, living in low Debar, to now he's overseeing 35 people caring for land that David restored to him. And finally, as beautiful as those two things were, guys, this... This had to be the most profound expression of love. It's when David said, and I want you to eat at my table the rest of the days of your life. It would have been really easy. It's kind of like David could have just written a check and just go, okay, yeah, just, just go. Like, just kind of stay out of my sight. But just the extra lavishing of love said, I want you at my table. I want to see you. Like, I want to talk with you. I want to get to know you. I want to enjoy you. You're like one of my sons now, like you're just in my inner circle. I just want to be with you day after day after day. I could imagine that that of all just blew Mephibosheth away. A, a, a guy that had been nothing but a nuisance to people, a guy that had lived in desolation for 20 years of his life is now just enjoyed and welcomed and brought into the inner circle of the king. You know, just, you could just tell that Mephibosheth is blown away, that did you see what he called himself? Why would you care for a dead dog like me? A dog in Israel at that time was a repulsive animal. Apparently they didn't know much about cats yet, so that would change eventually. <laughs> that would change eventually. Um, and just to be, to be called dead meant you were, you were vile, you were profane, like nobody wanted to be around you. So he's basically saying, I'm just a piece of garbage. Like why would you show this kind of... Car- this kind of love and affection for a piece of garbage. And yet it's so astonishing that of, the la- of those three things that David invited him into, to the table is that it mentions that four times in the text. Like in about four or five verses, keep, the author keeps repeating to us, and Mephibosheth ate at David's table. It's just like, guys, this is so unbelievable. But David not just did these good things for him, but he brought him in and he ate with him at the table. So the summary of the story was Mephibosheth ate at David's table, like one of the king's son. And Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Micah. And all who lived in Ziba's house became Mephibosheth's servants. So Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem, for he ate always at the king's table, and he was lame in both his feet. Like, that's the end of the statement. He, oh, and remember, he's lame in both of his feet. So there was a pastor, really famous, you know, 10, 15 years ago named Chuck Swindoll, and he writes this story about this, this story, and he paints a picture of what dinner at the table looked like every night. And so, and so he pictured some of David's children coming for dinner each night. And so Amnon was a very strong and witty and intelligent uh, son. So you can imagine Amnon coming to this dinner table. And then there's Joab, who would be an invited guest. He was David's right-hand commander. And so you can imagine a son tanned, you know, strong military type coming to the meal. And then Absalom, 
was a very handsome, very strong, strapping man coming to the table. And then maybe Solomon has been in the library all day long. And so then Solomon's coming in, just ready to share all the wisdom he learned that day. And Tamar would have been one of David's beautiful daughters coming at the table. And then they'd be used to this last ritual, that the last person coming to the table, you'd hear, kind of struggling to the table, would be crippled in both feet in the Fibosheth but he's joining right in with David's inner circle. He's one of the family. He's been welcomed in, just like one of David's sons. So maybe you've heard before about the five love languages. There's an author named Gary Smalley that wrote about that, and sometimes we refer to that in premarital counseling, I do, or maybe at marriage conferences. Like A love language is the way you express love and the way you receive love, and usually you will express love in the way that you're used to receiving it. Okay, and so if you're married, it's always good to know, like, what's the love language of your spouse? Or you have a good friend and you want to build that friendship? What is your friend's love language? Okay, so um, I remember, so there's five of them. So there's uh, words of, words of effect, affirmation, acts of service, there's gifts, there's quality time, and there's touch. One time in premarital counseling, I was asking a couple, so which ones do you guys have? And the woman in the couple said, I think I have all five of them. And so I said to the guy, you're going to be really busy. So most guys battle to hit one or two of these. But as I look at what David did for Mephibosheth here, I think I see, I see four. And let's say that maybe somewhere in here, David picked Mephibosheth up and gave him a monster hug. Then there'd be five, right? Because already he's given him words of affirmation, uh, fear not, you know, uh, I, I will love you just like I've loved your father, Jonathan. So the affirmation, the acts of service, hey, I've got 35 servants ready to work for you, right? So gifts, he's given them land, he's given them property. And of all of those, again, maybe because it's one of mine, I think the thing that hits him the strongest is the quality time. Like, I want you with me. I want you constantly in my presence and at my table. And so, as we look at this story, and again, you, you'll hear me say this a lot, we study the Bible, this isn't just a history lesson, it's not just what happened then, but that small story of David and Mephibosheth represents a much bigger story. And maybe you see where this is going, like this one pretty much puts the ball on the tee, it's a pretty, pretty basic message here, that if you look at that story, who are we in that narrative? And we, this morning, are a room full of Mephibosheths, all right? We're completely undeserving, sinful men and women when you consider access to a holy, perfect, righteous God. Like there's no one here that can just presume upon God and just presume into his inner circle and just say, yo, God, what's up? Like we can't do that. Okay, so just like Mephibosheth was in a barren land, was hiding in shame or fear, or maybe even angry at, at David, uh, we live like that in our sin. The Bible says in Romans 3, there is no one righteous, no, not one. No one understands who God is, and no one seeks God. Okay, so everyone in this room has sinned against a holy God. You've heard me say this before. I'm the worst sinner I know, so you guys can duke it out for number two, number three. But no one in this room deserves to be in the presence of God. We're not even seeking God, but yet... We find that because God is a God of loyal love, God is a God of grace, he pursued sinful people like me and like you, that he sent the greater David. So a thousand years or so after the life of David, 
came King Jesus, the one who fulfilled all the promises God made to David, that there would be a someone on the throne of David for all of eternity, and that's Jesus Christ, that Jesus came as the king who showed the compassion and mercy of God, that he sought us even when we were sinful and separated from God, and we had no hope living in a barren place. Jesus gave his life for us. Ephesians 2 captures this so powerfully. Ephesians 2, 4. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one can boast. So just like David showered grace on Mephibosheth, God showered love on us in the exact same way. Number one, he showered love on us. He knows our name, he knows our condition, and he still invites us into his presence. Number two is that just like David made Mephibosheth rich, God desires to enrich our lives. He calls us heirs of Christ. Like all that Jesus needed and relied upon to live this life are available to us. That's astonishing that we go from abject poverty to now becoming heirs with Christ. Anything we need to follow Jesus in this life, God will provide. He makes us rich. And then again, this may stagger you above all, but that God enjoys your presence. That God becomes the Father that loves it every time you cry out to him and talk to him. That God loves it every time that you spend time in his word and think about him and desire to follow him. And that God looks forward to eternity. That Jesus, in John 17, it's the passage where it's right before he's crucified, he's praying to his Father. And one of the things he asks his Father is like, Father, I want my people who trust me, who follow me, who are saved by me, I want them to be with me forever. I want them to see my glory. So I don't know if that blows you away, but when Jesus looks at you, he doesn't eye roll. It's like, oh, I got to put up with him for all of eternity. Like it's not that, but that he enjoys your presence and looks forward to eternity with you. So the very same love that David received from God and passed on to Mephibosheth is just a small picture of the great love that God desires to pour into your life and my life through Jesus Christ, the greater David. So I got to make sure we get this. And I got to ask two questions this morning um, as we wrap up. This first one might seem incredibly basic to you, um, but it's one that um, I'm frustrated is too strong a word. I'll, I'll just say it though. I'm getting frustrated of hearing this answer from people. When I ask, and these are people that I've gotten to know through here, through church, we get together, we talk about something, and I ask them, uh, so would you say that you're saved? Would you say that you have a relationship with God? Would you say that when you die, you know for sure you're going to heaven? And I'll hear this. The last four times I've asked that question, I've heard, I, th I think so, or I'm, I'm working on that, or I, I, hope, I hope so. And so what we need to understand here is that just shows me that there's a lack of understanding of the grace of God. Because there's only two answers to that question, whichever one of those you want to pick, however you want to put it. Are you saved? Have you been forgiven of your sins? Uh, do you know God? Are you going to heaven when you die? There's only two answers. It's either yes or no, okay? It can't be, oh, I'm not sure. 
I'm, I'm working on that, or I'm gonna, I'm trying, or, cause, cause we gotta understand our condition. When, when Mephibosheth called himself a dead dog, uh, he's kind of echoing what we saw in Ephesians 2, where it says that we were dead in our sins. Dead people can't try harder, okay? Dead people can't make themselves better. Dead people can't clean themselves up. Dead people have no hope other than God graciously granting life and forgiveness, okay? So so if you're in that, mm, I'm trying harder, or I'm trying to, I got to do better first, and then I will know God, or then God will forgive me, you don't understand the grace of God, and you don't understand your condition of being so separated from God that you can do absolutely nothing about it. So my prayer this morning is that lights would come on, and maybe it's easier to see through another story. Maybe you're too close to your own story. But in the story we just saw, you are Mephibosheth. You have no hope. Like you are separated from the king. You can't earn yourself back to the king. You can't earn favor to earn a spot at the king's table. The king is the one that had to seek you and say, I want you at my table. I love you. I will forgive you of, my, of your sins, and you will be with me for all of eternity. That is not something you try harder to achieve. That's something you just say, yes. I need that, yes. And that may not make sense in everything else in this life. It seems like you've got to work for and earn. But your salvation in Jesus Christ is simply you saying yes to the grace of God, okay? If that's new turf, get on it today. Like, why spend another day in low debar? Why spend another day just out there in fear or whatever it is, you apart from God? Like, why do that? Why waste another day? The offer from the king is, let me forgive you. Let me shower you with love and let me spend eternity with you. Just get in here. Just take this gift, all right? So I'd love to talk to you, talk to any of these. John's at the Connect booth. You can talk to him, a friend that brought you. Like, just make sure you understand the gospel. This is, again, the basics. This is following Jesus 101. You don't earn it. You just take it. You receive it because he did all the work for you. That is the grace of God, all right? So that's number one. Here's the second question. Do we really get this? And so maybe you would answer that first one, yes. And I, I know God, not because I'm better than anybody else, but because I received the gospel. So yes, I would answer those questions humbly but passionately, yes. So the second question for us would be this. Are there Mephibosheths in our life? I think that a true reflection of a person that has received the grace of God is that you will see they are compelled then to reach out to others. Like looking around, like who needs this? Who needs what I am tasting? Like who else can, can God use me to show favor to, his kindness to, just like he's been kind to me, who can I be kind to? So maybe who are those people that you're, you're financially blessing or who are those people that relationally just, as you go through your week, they're the ones on the outsides. They're the ones that nobody else is paying attention to. Like, are you bringing them in? Are you pursuing them? Just like God pursued you. And so, again, may we not be a people or a church that could answer the doctrinal question, is God gracious, true or false? True. You know, may our lives just, just blare out the truth that God is gracious just by seeing how we live, like just by seeing how we are gracious to people who are far from God, who are living in low debar, who need to understand the grace of God. Are we bringing those people close to us? May we be that kind of person. May we be those kind of families. May we be that kind of church that just reflects the grace of God. So let me pray for us. We'll wrap up. 
So Father, thank you for such a beautiful story. Thank you for a beautiful picture of a king who understood your grace for him and then shared that with this man named Mephibosheth. I thank you as one of the Mephibosheths in this room that you are that kind of God, that you offer to love us, you offer to forgive us, and you offer to bring us into your inner circle. And I pray if anybody here doesn't get that yet, uh, that you would open their eyes and help them understand their great need for the gospel. God, help them uh, stop trying to do this on their own, to stop trying to be better, stop trying to clean up their lives, and just realize that, that following you just starts with just saying yes to the grace of God. So just make that very clear. And I pray we'd hear stories today of people who said yes to you and your grace. And then, God, may we be a people, again, that just don't know these truths in our head, but we'd be a people to just reflect this in our lives, that we would be generous, grace-filled people, a generous, grace-filled church, that there, again, would be many stories, not for our glory but yours, of people who are far from you that now are tasting and walking in the grace of God. So use us to do that, Father. Thank you. You are an amazing king to us. Thank you. In your great name we pray. Amen.